The French shark led to die for love. They delight in fighting duels. But I prefer a man who lives and gives expensive jewels. A kiss on the hand may be quite continental, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. All right, so um, hi, this is Colin. <laughs> I was getting carried away there. Um, this is Colin. You're hearing not Marilyn Monroe, uh, but in fact the person who does the singing for the star Anna de Armas uh, in the new movie Blonde. Uh, so we are going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking really about two different stars from the same period who had very kind of similar life arcs. So we're talking about Elvis. We're talking about uh, Marilyn Monroe. Uh, each of them has a movie commemorating their lives right now. Um, yeah, and yes, these are people kind of born into the working class, into poverty or the very near edge uh, of poverty. They are stories of uh, absent fathers. Um, Marilyn's or Norma Jean's is sort of never around and never really quite discerned. Uh, Elvis's father was in jail or in prison uh, for some of his childhood. Uh, and, of course, they are stories about meteoric rises, untreated mental illnesses and, and, and drug addictions, uh, and just terrible, terrible, crashing, almost Shakespearean tragic ends. So uh, with that in mind, first of all, let me tell you who's on the show today. Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. Bill Usman uh, is a professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. And before we get them talking about the movie Blonde, directed by, Anth- uh, by Andrew Dominic, uh, let's hear a little something from the movie itself. Kat, this will be a one. You're going to hear Dan Butler as I.E. Shin, kind of a clueless agent uh, handling Marilyn Monroe and uh, the aforementioned Ana de Armas uh, as Norma Jean. I don't want you seen in public with them, Norma Jean. And in private? In private? Take precautions. Mr. Shin, that's so cruel. It's crude and cruel. And you... you know it. I'm just thinking of your career and your well-being. Thinking of Marilyn. Yes. Her career. Yes. And her well-being. She doesn't have any well-being. She's only a career. They know I'm Norma. Not Marilyn. They understand me. I understand you. I invented you. Another piece of commonality between these two movies is that question of who invented whom. Uh, A lot of people seem to want to claim they invented superstars. So uh, let's get going here. So Irene Papoulos, we hear in that scene um, this agent cautioning uh, Marilyn or Norma Jean from appearing in public with, I believe, uh, the sons of Charlie Chaplin and Edward G. Robinson, who are portrayed as a gay couple. Uh, and But what's really being explored there is one of the themes of the movie, which is identity, which is to what degree is Norma Jean able to retain uh, any version of herself uh, as this elaborate star-making machinery gets her in its jaws. So I, I don't know. First of all, 
we've been exchanging some very interesting emails <laughs> over the last 24 <laughs> hours. And so I, I just maybe just kind of overall share your take on Blonde. Okay, so yeah, my overall take is uh, that I didn't think I was going to like it after I read the reviews, and I absolutely loved it. Okay, so that's my starting point, and my take is that it really explores the psychological and career effects of exploitation and abuse that both of these people suffer, that Marilyn suffered as a child and throughout her career. Yeah, people wanting them. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, keep talking. Keep talking. I was going to say, like you know, people wanting something, wanting a piece of her talent, wanting a piece of her, you know, literally and figuratively, you know, in a way that was so profound that she had to, she had to, you know, that that uh, um, section that you just played is kind of like the idea of like Marilyn versus Norma Jean, as though those are two different entities, was her way of separating her vulnerability out i mean a very very tragic way that i that the movie explores in what i think is a very interesting way yeah and and so bill this isn't done in a kind of conventional biopic way it's about as far from a documentary as you could get this is a highly impressionistic stylized uh, piece of directing by andrew dominic uh, who's um who kind of just creates you i mean he's just swapping out film stocks and aspect ratios mm-hmm. and weird convex lenses and you know it, it, i mean it's sort of an uh, it's a virtuosic piece of directing it feels a little bit at times like he's just throwing everything but the kitchen sink uh, at, at these mm-hmm. scenes but so how did that work for you yeah there's a there's a bed that turns into a waterfall um i for me it made it quite compelling uh quite visually compelling uh to begin with and i do think you know like irene i i had seen some of the reviews and the reviews have been pretty savage toward it and i don't feel that way at all i think it has actually a a lot going for it to recommend it. I think Dominic took a really big swing. And for the most part, for me, that swing connects. There are some misses, um, but I think it was it's it's extremely ambitious ambitious. Uh, we might even say blonde ambition. Uh, but um y- you know, I, I think he was going after. Uh, something epic and something spectacular in much the same way that Baz Luhrmann always does. And we'll talk about that again when we talk about Elvis. And it's an extremely difficult film, but I don't see how it could not have been a difficult film if you're going to deal with the, the horrific things that happened to Marilyn Monroe, Norma Jean, over the course of her life. Right. And there's, I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, I would say that in a way that the, the main criticism that, uh, that sort of generates at least some disagreement for me is the idea that the film itself is exploiting Marilyn's yeah. image, exploiting the actress, Anna de Armas is like sort of doing to doing to Marilyn exactly what it's critiquing others for, for doing to her. Right. And in a way that how you come down on the answer to answer that question, like, is is an important part of how you how you're going to see this movie and i'm sort of surprised that that's the critique because i i think that i'm pretty sensitive to films that are just you know let's just look at this woman's body because we want to look at it 
as opposed to film, you know, and that that does turn me off a lot if it's claiming to do something else. And I didn't feel that in this movie. And that's where I think I would disagree with a lot of um, the critics of the movie, because I felt like everything, every sort of way, you know, leering that the camera does toward her is to me in service of what it's trying to do, not, it doesn't, you know, so anyway, that's, that would be my Take. Yeah, I mean, I think that the male gaze is the Satan right. uh, Satan of this movie. You know, there's a way in which, for example, some of the iconic scenes, uh, the seven-year itch updraft uh, scene, uh, mm-hmm. you know, is is shown, and then it kind of, the shot widens out to these <laughs> leering male yeah. faces, and they all have cameras and cigarettes, and they just look like demons. Uh, and, and are and, their mouths yeah. kind of, like, enhanced? That's, that, that's, a, different scene. that's a different yeah. scene. I think that's yeah. the um, oh, okay, gentleman that's prefer blondes uh, red carpet or, or something like that. Yes, oh, there's yeah. one. Can I say something oh, yeah. quickly yeah. about that, Colin, yeah. before you ask us, you know, to, to go on? Um, those scenes very much reminded me of uh, there was a famous American photographer who went by the name of Ouija. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing it right. Um, and he took photographs of people looking at like horrific murder scenes and car crashes and disasters. And to me, I very much saw that, um, in those particular shots. Right. And, and so I think one of the debates that we had, um, and, and it's, uh, we'll now, we can now have it on the air, although I'm kind of convinced now that Bill and Irene are right and McPants and I are wrong uh, because you guys argued this so well. <laughs> nice so, job, Irene. <laughs> so, so, but this is not a criticism that emanates only from me and McPants, but it's that, that sort of idea that you don't really get to see Marilyn Monroe do what she could do in this. This is not a movie where she's uh, allowed, really. Like, I don't think it's exploitive in the way that you were talking about, uh, Irene. I, I think every time we see Marilyn's body, we know something's going to go very wrong or already has. Uh, in connection with that body. So, uh, but I do, I did feel as though, wow, here's this fabulously talented person. She didn't just, she wasn't just some like super attractive blonde sex symbol. I mean, she mm-hmm. really was, you know, uh, a pretty interesting person. Uh, and they, the uh, Dominic kind of decides not to show us that. There's even, you know, this kind of iconic moment where she's, uh, uh, she's been doing an Arthur Miller reading at the Actors Circle in L.A. or wherever they are, and she blows Miller away with the way that she reads it, and then they go out to lunch, and actually we'll play the clip here right now, uh, or they go out for a drink or something afterwards, uh, and they start talking. But before we play the clip, let me just say one thing about this. The one thing they don't show you is her reading that part. You know? yeah. They don't show, and they don't really show you the stuff that Marilyn can do. Now, you guys, I think, have a very interesting counter argument to that. But before that, let's just uh, play a little of this clip. Again, we hear Anna de Armas as Norma Jean, Adrian Brody as the playwright. Uh, People are known as the ex-athlete and the playwright, and it's obviously DiMaggio and Arthur Miller. But anyway, here we go. This girl, Magda, she's like Natasha in The Three Sisters. The one they laugh at because her dress is the wrong color. Except with Magda, it's the way she speaks English. Who told you that? What? About the three sisters and my play. Nobody. Kazan? That I've been influenced? I know. No. I read the play myself. I always thought I... I always thought I could play Natasha. 
I was thinking what Chekhov does with Natasha. He he <clears throat> he, he surprises you. Because Natasha turns out to be so strong and devious and cruel. But your Magda, she never changes much. She's always so good. Yes. All right. Uh, I think I haven't said it already. This is based, by the way, the whole blonde movie is based on the, the uh, Joyce Carol Oates novel uh, of the same name. But all right. So uh, I mentioned this sort of a whole idea. Why not show us? how great Marilyn Monroe was at some of the things that she did. Irene, you and Bill have an interesting counter argument to that. Um, yeah, well, I don't know if it's the same one, but I'll say, but I think it, it, it I feel like that scene, first of all, isn't that a great scene? The mm. way she talks is so Marilyn-ish, you know, that breathy, breath, breathiness. Mm. Um, she does such a great job with that, but uh, is you know, in that scene, there's just that idea like, what? You have a brain? That can't be true. You must have gotten that idea from someone else, you know? And that how many times have men said that to women or anyone said that to people who are pretty, you know? Uh, and there's this this stereotype. Even Arthur Miller has a stereotype. Like, she's so pretty, she can't have read Chekhov. You know, she can't come up with an idea on her on her own. And um, And so that's what you know, what interests him, him about her. But yeah, I mean, so the implication is, I mean, that is one place where the impl- where we're sort of saying, look, she has much more to say. She has much more depth. But I don't think the, the film is trying, and I think we would, we misread the film if we're, if we're looking for um, more concrete evidence of the, her power as a, as an artist, you know, but I, I see it from the beginning though, but I, I do feel like they give us hints, you know, so in the very beginning, uh, you know, you can see her, 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 her ambition as an actress, we see it, but the film is about what happens to that ambition in, you know, uh, when you're surrounded by people who see your ambition, see your power and potential and want to exploit it for their own needs. Yeah. Bill? Well, I take uh, your point and McNichol's point, Colin, that the film really does not fully explore all of the power that Marilyn Monroe had and her, her incredibly deep talent, as you say, beyond the surface. Um, but I think that would have been a different film and I'm, I'm not sure you can do both of these things. This very much is about, um, I mean, we might even argue that it's, it's not a film about Marilyn Monroe as much as it is about what our culture does to Marilyn Monroe. And as Irene says to so many women, um, and I think it's important to, to look at men for that matter. Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that with Elvis, yep. too, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think it's important to look at the source material, and it it isn't really a traditional biopic. It certainly is not a documentary, although I saw someone on social media weirdly refer to it as that. It's it's based on this novel, uh, this big, thick novel by George Carroll Oates, who, you know, Joyce Carroll Oates has this very, very dark and and almost peculiar uh gothic view of the world and you know i've always argued that i think one of the things you have to think about with joyce carol oates is that among other things she's a horror novelist 
And I think that this film is in some ways a horror film um, and that the monsters that lurk through it are, you know, monsters that we admire and look up to like film directors and studio heads and presidents of the United States. And so I think that it was doing something very specific and, and maybe we could look at it as um, um, flattening Monroe in some ways because of that, but, but I think it has a very particular mission that it was focused on. Right. And we should say that um, the men, the iconic men, are portrayed, I think, pretty accurately, but also, therefore, very unflatteringly. Uh, DiMaggio was physically abusive. With It's odd because DiMaggio became very tender and loyal towards her towards the end of her life. I believe he's the person who paid for her funeral and made sure there was a service. And I mean, he stayed very interested in her. But what we see is, you know, a, a real kind of wife beater. Uh, and we see uh, Arthur Miller as patronizing, you know, a little bit more nurturing, but patronizing in the way that you see in that scene. And then JFK is really portrayed as, I mean, just the, the scene. Well, I, Irene, you should say something about this scene. I mean, it's a it's yes. a scene that I think it's the reason the movie has an NC-17 rating. Uh, and it is a scene where Marilyn is shown kind of filleting uh, JFK while he's on the phone, I think probably to J. Edgar Hoover uh, or somebody who's basically telling him not to do stuff like it. Uh, and, and he's doing exactly the thing he's being told not to do while he's having the phone conversation. But Irene, you had a very specific set of reactions to it. Well, yeah, well, one reaction to it is that we were waiting for, I was waiting for Kennedy, you know, and it's also, there's also the question of how much you know about Marilyn going into the movie. So if you don't know, if you never saw the the iconic scene of her singing to Kennedy, uh, you wouldn't have been expecting it in the way that I was, because I was thinking, all right, it's sort of going through the things that I know about from her life. And it's it's kind of like showing me the underbelly of them. And then I'm expecting, I'm waiting for this one. Like, wow, well, OK, the movie's already been going on for so long, over two hours. We still haven't gotten there. You know, what's going to happen? And then when we get there, it's just completely, in, you know, sort of, uh, to some extent, I suppose, invents a different scene, you know, and it's all from her point of view. And it's just brutal you know it just is really so um i think amazingly trying to get into the that experience of of that she had right there you know the experience of here i am mr president you know and then just you know having to having to sort of do something that she that just sort of like by rote you know she did but it wasn't you know it was just like hideous it was a hideous um, scene, but very effective, I thought. Right. So we, you, go, you go ahead. Yeah. It's brutal. And, and Kennedy is portrayed as a monster. Um, they bring her in and you see this dark haired woman that she passes sobbing, obviously Jackie. Um, and they bring her past her. And then, you know, you see lipstick on other glasses in the room already from these women who have come and gone. And you see the men sitting just outside the door. Yeah, without even closing the door. No, and, you know, they're just complicit in all of this. And in an earlier scene, you see a secretary who's complicit in, you know, her being raped by a studio executive. So, you know, it is an indictment. And, and, you know, Marilyn Monroe was, you know, a Me Too icon before Me Too was ever dreamed of. And I think that's what the film is really honed in on. All right, so... um, 
Uh, we need to take a break here. We, I do want to warn everybody, the film's two hours and 46 minutes long. Uh, you have the option of watching it in chunks, though. And I think it actually kind of works that way a little bit, too, because so many of these pieces, Dominic's visual pieces, are kind of set pieces. I, I compared them to kind of walking through an art gallery and looking at one painting or picture or art installation after another. It often kind of feels that way. But it and the Elvis movie we'll be talking about in just a second are both very long movies. Uh, all right. We're going to take a break here. Uh, I think the break is going to consist of me and Kat trying to get a little bit of pledge activity going here. But Kat, uh, do whatever happens next all right what's up colin hi hello it's friday and you know what that means it is pet pledge day ah pet pledge day no clearly i don't read any of the memos (laughs) so you're gonna have to explain how this works because i figured you wouldn't um (laughs) and usually i don't either but here we are so um we need 10 pet pledges this hour so what that means is that you're gonna donate in honor of your favorite pet from any point of your life uh, that's a nice way of saying even if the pet is deceased, feel free to honor that pet. Um, and you can write a little something about them in the comments section, and then that could be read on the air. Um, so we've actually got a few in. Um, I love this. So Jenna Schatz- Schatzer in Norwich, Connecticut, has a, has a cat and a dog, and this is in memory of Minty and Cowser. Those are great names. Yes. Minty is the cat and Cowser is the dog. Teddy in comment from Lauren Perino in Norwich. Um, And Annika Dane, I hope I said that right. She loves the station and she's donating donating on behalf of her cats. Callie, Madison, Amelia, Sushi, and Bruno. That's a lot of cats, Um, which I'm I'm totally down for. I love cats. But anyway, if you want to make a pet pledge, again, we need 10. And uh, you can call 1-800-584-2788 and somebody will be uh, on the other end of the line willing to assist you. Or you could go to ctpublic.org slash donate, fill out a quick form, and uh, you could also look at all the cool uh, donor gifts that we have for you this year. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, tote bags, mugs, and uh, T-shirts. Right. So Kat and I are going to make a deal with you guys out there, which is we're going to keep this break shorter than we're supposed to have it. Uh, and But you have to sort of... You know, reinforce that idea and make it seem like a good idea by doing a fair amount of pledging during the show or immediately after the show and mentioning the show. And you can mention in your comments how happy you are that the breaks are shorter or whatever. But yeah, the number is 1 800 584 2788. 1 800 584 2788. You can go online to pledge at ctpublic.org. Mention the fact that you think it's good that the breaks are shorter. Yes, uh, along and, with your pet. Yes. Your pet and speaking of your pet, for a gift of $5 a month, or more, uh, you can get, it's a limited quantity available kind of thing, a CT Public Pet Bowl. Uh, so, you know, you, you can then bring, you know, you can bring the whole thing together. You can tie this whole concept together uh, by getting as your, your thank you gift a CT Public Pet Bowl. I don't think I need to say anything more about that. But we are asking you to, you know, call in during the show, 1-800-584-2788, or go online to ctpublic.org. We're so grateful when you do. Uh, and as part of that deal... Kat, I'm getting ready to wrap up this whole pledge break, but you may want to say one more thing. All right. Yep. 1-800-584-2788. This drive was already reduced by two days. And if you want to see it reduced more, note that along with your pet pledge. ctpublic.org slash donate as well. And uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's go out of this. All right. We'll be back. I want to be loved by you, just you, and nobody else but you. I want to be loved by you. Alone, boop boop be doo. I wanna be kissed by you, just you, and nobody else but you.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham. Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new state-of-the-art destination for healing. Individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment. They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture. So it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal. For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging. Many individuals travel to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers, so we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford HealthCare, that individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close by. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. If you're looking for trouble, you came to the right place. If you're looking for trouble, just look right in my face. I was born standing up and talking back. My daddy was a green-eyed man. All right. You would be forgi- forgiven for thinking that is Elvis Presley, but it's actually Austin Butler, the guy who plays Elvis Presley in uh, Elvis, Baz Luhrmann's new feature. I just want to say to the panel, how did we get through the entire A segment without ever talking about the talking fetus? Uh, now they won't know. <laughs> they'll watch this movie and they'll say, why were we not prepared for the talking fetus? All right. Well, anyway. Well, a great delight awaits them. Yes, then. that's right. There we go. Well, So Irene Papoulos and Bill Usman are with me. Uh, Elvis is Baz Luhrmann's sixth feature film. He doesn't make a lot of movies. started in 1992. This is his sixth movie. So um, he takes his time. <laughs> <laughs> and some of that, by the way, is due to uh, somebody whose name is not said enough. Her name is Catherine Martin. She, I think she's sort of like, I think they're almost like a directing pair. She does all the art direction costumes and stuff like that, which is such a big thing for a Baz Luhrmann movie. Certainly a huge thing uh, for this particular movie. Um, and yes, there are some you know, other interesting parallelisms. Uh, Marilyn Monroe, Monroe was born a, or Norma Jean was uh, born a little brunette girl who dyed her hair blonde. I believe Elvis was born blonde uh, and dyed his hair black. Uh, so, but the the comparisons don't end there. Uh, there are other ways in which uh, they were manipulated by the people around them. Uh, and so I guess we should begin here, Bill. Uh, this is the story of Elvis. But the narrator of the story, the sort of lens of the story, is in fact Colonel Tom Parker, uh, his Svengali, played by Tom Hanks. Um, so I guess we should kind of start there, right? This is at least arguably or ostensibly Tom Parker telling his story, which is a way of telling the Elvis story. Yeah, and he's kind of an archetype as a unreliable narrator um, because, you know, of course, everything is filtered through his own perspective. And, you know, we talked about this in, in a little uh, a little bit in our emails. It's very much a cartoon kind of portrayal. It certainly is not the best part of this film, which I did enjoy much more than I expected to. Um, I think overall it holds up really well. And even with its length, it did not feel long to me. Um, it looks good. It sounds great. The use of music is fantastic. And, you know, Lerman is known 
for kind of knowing uh using uh and uh, music anachronistically but it really works and i found that incredibly compelling but it is you know parker's story about elvis and and parker as Bengali, um and um even though he's narrating it he comes off very very poorly in it yes well, and so um, I just want to say one other thing, Bill, about the music, too, which is that it's used kind of postmodernistically. There's a way in which rather yes. than being kind of a pure r- rendering of Elvis's music, although there there is some of that uh, in there, there are also these kind of amazing kind of pastiches where it's yeah. somebody singing in a, you know, a Beale Street blues club and then it gets into Britney Spears and hip hop and mm-hmm. it, all, it all kind of comes slapping together in this very interesting way that could be jarring, but I think he does pull it off. It sounds really good, I think. So, you know, Irene, maybe a difference between these two movies is that I think Lurman feels some incumbency to show us why Elvis was popular. And I think that's an important thing to do. I think you and I and Bill, I'm the oldest of the three of us, but and I just sort of missed by a few years the chance to be a direct Elvis fan, you know, somebody who sort of was brought on board in the early stages and stuff like that. And and if you didn't do that, there's often a risk that what you remember is Elvis on the downhill slope, Elvis who's kind of turned into this Vegas mockery uh, of what he had previously been. Um, and so, like, one thing that I liked, Irene, was the, they really showed us what it was like when Elvis caught fire with his audiences. Yes. Um, instead of the leering men, we had the leering women, you yes. know, and, 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 and yeah. just like going nuts over. And also his power. I mean, I think Austin Butler did a great job of sort of embodying this the stage presence. Um, you know, I, I mean, and yeah, I agree. You know, it's interesting because they even though they are peers, I feel like I kind of knew know more about Marilyn than I do about Elvis because it was it was sort of like, yeah, it was like the sort of the generation before. And it wasn't, you know, so I didn't come to it with as much knowledge as I did come to, uh, you know, I knew, I know about Elvis's songs, but, and I, you know, I mean, I guess we all know the specific, you know, the, the trajectory of his life, but yeah, I think that, that, and so we did see it. Yeah. They were trying to see it, but I actually, I I also want to say that the idea of having it through the, through the lens of, um, you know, somebody who was exploiting him is I think I think really in, an interesting decision to make because it's it's sort of like you know these people are are exploited and the people who exploit them have some kind of maybe twinges of conscience but not really because they're going to do it it's not going to change their their behavior in any way but I thought it was interesting I mean because he was so corrupt and so 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 horrible uh, in in the way that he exploited Elvis for his own greed. Uh, and, um, but, but it's, but it's a, a kind of, it's like a kind of interesting angle to say, how, how would he talk about it? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and how he would talk about it would have to be, well, I had to do it. You know, I, it was my only choice or, you know, I did it because it just needed to be done. I treated, I, you know, and they tried to make it, he had these moments of, you know, seeming connection to, you know, caring about Elvis himself, but then, you know, 
anyway, that's... All right, so let's play a little clip from the movie. This uh, is very much in the kind of satanic tradition of of Parker's portrayal. It's, you know, it is like Satan taking Jesus up on the hill and showing him the things of this world. Uh, There's quite a bit of Mephistopheles in this character, generally speaking. I don't know whether this is the one where they're at the top of the Ferris wheel, but this is one of their early conversations. Tom Hanks is Colonel Tom Parker, Austin Butler is Elvis. Creatures of the carnival, and I am one myself. It's where I learned the art of the snow job. Snow job? Yes, it's like the trick you do with uh, wiggling, getting on the girls hipped up, empty their wallets, and leave them with nothing but the smiles on their faces. I'm no trickster. Oh, yes, you are. All showmen are stunned. Your future, Mr. Presley, blazing before you. Reporting contracts, television, even Hollywood. You're great, Colonel. You are the best person I could ever hope to work with. And you know, this is something I, I ain't never said to nobody before. I believe I can be great, too. Oh, no doubt. But we could be even greater together. It's just business. Sure business. To achieve truly great things, one must make truly great sacrifices. You see, my boy, show business is snow business. All right. So I, I just want to say parenthetically that one of the very strange choices that Tom Hanks made in portraying Colonel Tom Parker uh, is to – and Tom Hanks himself may have been a strange choice to play Colonel Tom Parker – is to accentuate this Dutch accent, which in fact Colonel Tom Parker did not do or have. In fact, Elvis was rather surprised to find out very late in his career that Colonel Tom Parker was not an American, a U.S. citizen. Uh, and I mean he wasn't – he didn't talk like that is the main thing. But But – so, Bill, yeah, we have to go back to this for a second. First of all, we need to talk about Hanks. The, I think one of the big questions is, can Hanks disappear into a character like this? Can Hanks ever disappear at this point, given who he is in the Hollywood firmament uh, in 2022? Yeah, and so this is going to be blasphemy to so many people. I'm actually not a huge Tom Hanks fan. Um, I know he's a American, you know, film icon at this point. Um, but, um, you know, I've, I've, I've never really been totally sold on him. And in this particular role, it's, it's so much caricature. It's such a, it's, it's such a parody and, you know, the, the whole accent and, and, and all of it, I, I don't know. Like there's a trace of Shylock in here too, which um, I found a little bit um, disturbing in terms of how it's approached. And, you know, I I do think it, it, it does a good job of showing how rapacious Parker was um, in terms of him wanting to manipulate and exploit Elvis. But um I don't know that that part of it. I, I I think is a little bit troubling to me as well. Yeah, I mean Bobby Cannavale as Joe DiMaggio, no problem. <laughs> I'm fine. Fantastic. I'm fine yeah. with that. I should say, by the way, in the in the blonde movie, the guy who plays JFK actually played JFK in Jackie, the Natalie Portman uh, movie. So he's apparently uh, now, and now he doesn't even have to worry about disappearing into the role. But yeah, so <laughs> he's got the face. He's, he's got, got the Kennedy. He's got the whole thing going on of, there. Yeah. yeah. So. So, yeah, Irene, I, I, one thing that I, I do want to make sure that we talk about, because I think it's, you know, one of the things that I 
I think maybe even grew up thinking a little bit about Elvis. And then I should say that, as many of you know, a few years ago, uh, Jim Chapelain and Steve Metcalf and Latanya Farrell and I did a live Elvis show uh, at Watkinson as part of the Freshly Squeezed series there. Uh, and that involves some real immersion in it. Uh, and one of the things that became clear right away was that that Elvis wasn't an, so much an appropriator of black music as a worshiper of black music, uh, somebody yes. who was shaped by black music. You know, and Irene, I think the film does a pretty good job of making that distinction, of letting you see the fact that everything that he ever did, he did pretty reverently. And they deal with that very early on, which I think is smart. Right. I love that long scene. That was one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie where he's, you know, he's, he's tired of his mother and he leaves yeah. the house and gets into the car and goes to this black club uh, and and hangs out and and simply enjoys it, you know. And he, you know, his interactions. But I think it's also interesting the way the the movie looks at race. Um, and you know, like so, there's a scene where he's talking to not BB King. It's um, one of the musicians, and he's one of the black musicians. And he said, "Who said?" You know, and he's talking about being afraid of being arrested uh, for, you know shaking his pelvis and the the black musician says a white boy isn't going to be in prison for long you know you don't have to worry mm -hmm. and then you see his face and it's kind of like you know he doesn't react he reacts in a he takes it in he takes in that information and sort of so i think his his idea it's sort of like he saw the racism but his attitude was wow that's really too bad you know as opposed to becoming an activist or anything and the the movie i thought the movie is kind of like that too like the movie is just saying you know let's look at it but let's also appreciate that he was part of it too it wasn't he wasn't completely separate from it and i was wondering how how historically accurate that was did he really spend time in black clubs? oh yes yes i mean yeah. uh, you see i think it's gary clark jr who plays arthur crudup who is you know a black blues musician whom elvis studied pretty carefully uh in person had a chance to see and and always gave him credit even in terms of how he elvis played the guitar and stuff like that but you know i want to go back to something else that you said because i think it's important i want to bounce it off bill too because i think one of the ways that this movie is different from Marilyn, uh, from Blonde, rather, is that um, it does gloss over a lot of stuff, you know? I mean, I forget how old P Priscilla Presley really was when he married her, but it was, like, really young, you know? And, and there's other weird stuff about him and his sexuality, you know? And then there's, like, the part where he really starts to get totally whacked out and he's showing up at the Nixon White House with guns and, you know, and being let into the White House with guns on his person. But, you know, there's sort of, I, I think it doesn't, it shows us the decline Fine. But I think there is a little bit of kind of myth making or papering over of some of the really, really heavy dysfunction. Yeah. I mean, if if the criticism of Blonde is that it focuses too much on the tragedy and not enough on the glory, um, maybe the the reverse of that, the the negative of that would be the case for the Elvis film. Um, it does focus a lot on the glory, you know, his, his, his unbelievable talent and charisma and power. Um, and I think Irene is, is absolutely right about how it, it fully acknowledges his debt to, to black music and how it starts really at a young age with, you know, his involvement in, um, black church services and, and gospel that he just gets carried away swept away by um and then of course 
you know, in the latter half of the film, it goes into the decline and Parker is very much really kind of the puppet master there too. And is, and is blamed for that, that Elvis wants to travel for example, and that Parker won't allow that to happen. The, the deals that he makes, the way he starts, you know, getting them to prescribe him uh, drugs and even inject him. Um, and all of that leads to, to, to the downfall. And they, and they do deal with that in, in the second half of the film, but, but for the most part, you know, Parker is the villain and it and the film is, I think, very much a love letter to Elvis. Right. So, yeah, I think so, too. Uh, by the way, I'm being informed that when they first started dating, uh, Priscilla Presley was 14 years old. Uh, they didn't get married until she was 22. But um, oh, wow. the, the weirdness still is there. So. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I, I, something Bill just said, Irene, is maybe a, a place where we could we could kind of aim toward, towards an ending here, which is I think each of these movies also is about the the way in which you have to keep transforming from yourself into the star over and over again. And when you lack the energy to do it, other people do it, right? So pretty soon you're being injected with stuff, you know? I mean, each of these figures, Marilyn and Elvis, they're being injected with stuff just for the sheer effort of maintaining this impossible persona, this superstar persona where you have very little agency, very little control over what's happening to you. Uh, and, and and I don't know, there's this, this almost sort of monster movie quality to what happens has to happen to make you be that person yeah that's interesting i mean they do okay they have very little control but they want to you know elvis wanted to go on tour i, I just found that so heartbreaking i yes. just want to go to europe and japan i've never been out of the country no you have to mm. sit in in las mm. vegas every night night after night you know so it's almost as though they had and i felt that with marilyn too in that movie um that she wanted to go farther so in a way i see it as the opposite of what you just said Colin, in the sense of having the, what they didn't want was to be the person that other people wanted them to be. They wanted to be the artist that they wanted to be. And, right. but they're in a, but, but that was impossible. So because it was impossible, they had to continue to sort of put that facade forth of who they were supposed to be and who they were getting the, you know, who the money people wanted them to be and who they thought the fans wanted them to be and and that's the tragedy of both of them that they if they had just been left alone they probably both would have wanted to continue being creative yeah you know? i guess i was how i saw them i was sort yeah. of thinking there's a scene in blonde where this character whitey uh she uh, you know marilyn has collapsed and he he's there with a syringe and some makeup and he says i yes. will con i will conjure marilyn in in an hour you know, yeah. Um, yeah, and that, but that's the 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 fake Marilyn, the you know, fake that Marilyn. she that yeah. she had so much trouble, or the Marilyn quote in quotes that she sort of created, in contrast to to her real Norma Jean self. Right. That I I think that contrast show, you know, the in a, you know an artist needs to blend those two things mm. to to really be to be sort of genuine as an artist. But okay. if you have to split off. You know, okay, I panel, I got a break. I'm in, I'm, I'm in a lot of trouble with the clock people right now. So we're going to take a break. We'll come back after this. Hey, let's do it. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. 
In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. We're back. The uh, technical producer of today's show is, as it should be, Cat Pastor. Uh, Jonathan McPants is the producer of this episode and most episodes of The Nose. Uh, with us, Irene Papoulis and Bill Usman. We have a few minutes here to make some recommendations. Irene, what are you going to recommend to us? Okay, I'm going to start with the movie Spencer that I might have recommended before, but nobody has seen it. So I want to say it again because I was thinking of it during Blonde. It's about That's Lady right. Diana. Another troubled icon. Yep. Stewart. Yep. Yeah. And it's it also doesn't really talk about her real story, but it tries to get inside her head in a way that I think is interesting. Also, I watched something that we, were, we talked about on the nose a while back called The Rehearsal. I watched the rest of it and I really recommend it watching the whole thing. I was laughing <laughs> so yeah. hard in the last couple of episodes of it. It's the quirkiest. If you're in the movie, for something totally offbeat and unexpected and quirky, but human, I recommend the rehearsal on HBO if you have HBO. And my third one is that Ride the Bus. The buses in Hartford are all free, I just discovered. And um, and they have been for two years. So I was late to that party, but you can just get on any bus and go to work that way. And if you if it doesn't go straight to work, you can walk a ways. And it's just a it's fun and it's great and it's free. All right. Um, and Bill Usman, how about you? Uh, a couple things I've been watching and really enjoying. Uh, there's a Hulu uh, television show called Rami, uh, which is by a uh, Egyptian comedian named Rami Youssef about him himself really as a young man uh, growing up and coming of age in New Jersey. I, I think it's an incredibly smart and empathetic show that is, you know, kind of a sitcom, but it's a it's a much more uh, ambitious kind of sitcom in the tradition of sort of like Donald Glover's Atlanta. Uh, so it's just called Rami and it just started its third season. And I think it's really, really great. And then I just recently watched a uh, new documentary called My Old School. And I don't want to say too much about it, except it's it's about a guy who comes back to a school that he had attended and there's just a lot of reveals that happen and lots and lots of layers and they do it in this really unique style where the actual person didn't want to be on camera so the actor Alan Cumming lip syncs all of his lines and it and then it brings in some animation and it's just really interesting and well-developed my okay. old school 
I was watching the uh, the Pierce Brosnan Bond movie Golden Eye. Alec, uh, Alec, uh, Alan Cumming is in that movie. He has a totally unknown, undiscovered person who cannot maintain a Russian accent uh, to save his life, <laughs> but he's in it. Uh, all right, I'm going to recommend. We're probably going to do this on a nose at some point, but the movie The Greatest Beer Run Ever. This is based on a true story about a, a guy from a West Side working class neighborhood in New York back when there were such things, um, who decides to bring beer to all of the people that he knows, all the men that he knows who are fighting in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Uh, Zac Efron plays that particular guy, Chicky. Um, and it's, you know, it's stylized. It's, um, but it's also, it's it's gritty too. And I think it really gets some of the weirdness of, of the Vietnam War. And it's, it's also just kind of a, I don't know, it's a terrific story. Uh, I, I should be more articulate about it, but I haven't thought the whole thing through. I watched it last night. All right. So now are we going to do pledge right here? Is that, what, is that what we're doing? I mean, I mean, we could do whatever. We could do pledge right here. <laughs> All right. Let's do pledge right here. So Cap Pastor and I are here. We yeah, are asking right. you. Bye, Bill and Irene. Yes. Bye, Bill. Bye, bye Irene. Bye. It was so much bye. fun having bye. you. Um, yeah, pledge, pledge. So 1-800-584-2788 uh, is the number to call, or you can go online to ctpublic.org. Make a pledge. Help support this show that you like so much. Red Cat. That's right. Um, and, you know, uh, 1-800-584-2788. There are nice people on the other end of the line. If you don't feel like calling in, ctpublic.org slash donate. Fill out a quick form. Check out all the cool donor gifts we have. But today is Pet Pledge Day. We need 10 this hour. So if you haven't called in yet to tell us about your pets, please do that. I mean, who doesn't love talking about their pet? Um, it would almost be cruel not to. And I think that your pet will know that uh, you refuse to talk about them. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about mine. Well, it's not my pet. It's my mom's dog, Gus. I'm obsessed with him. He loves eating tortilla chips. He's addicted to the crunch. I actually don't think I'm supposed to feed him those, but <laughs> that's okay. Um, so again, pet pledge. Uh, I think it's going on all day. We need like 70. Uh, so keep those coming in. 1-800-588-84. 1-800-584. I almost gave the yeah, If you can't say that number, number. <laughs> if you can't say that number in your sleep by now, there's something wrong. Listen, I consistently want to give the phone number for my old radio station mm-hmm. during pledge. So I actually have to physically look at the number written down on a piece of paper so that I don't screw it up. 1-800-584-2788. And if you do it within the next like three and a half minutes, then you give Colin the credit for that. And I know a lot of you love him out there. I'm, I'm talking to you, my mom's friends, who are con- constantly asking questions. So uh, <laughs> why don't you call in uh, and, you know, hey. Talk about your pets. I know you got them. Yeah, we've actually, we have had pets donate before. During one of the pledge breaks I I did a few years ago, uh, Flo, who is a dog who lives in my neighborhood, uh, made a pledge uh, and was very excitedly received. Oh, that's so kind of her. So, yeah, people do that. So, yeah, on behalf of your your pet, because your pet pet is listening. The radio's on. Your pet is listening. So call 1-800-584-2788 or go online at ctpublic.org. Click the donate button. And now we're going to say goodbye to you by saying goodbye to another icon who had a biopic made about her a long time ago. That would be Loretta Lynn. It just dawned on me what Sunday